Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we come before you tonight and we do worship you, God. Um, uh, you are sovereign over this world and uh, although you are sovereign and so far above us, God, that you are still here with us now. And Father God, we just uh, long to know more of you. Uh, we long to just see you clearer and, uh, and feel you closer. Uh, and God, this is our prayer that tonight you would speak to us um, through every aspect of tonight. Uh, and Lord, would you just uh, guide my words, Lord, may they be uh, words from you that encourage people, and may any word, if there is any that is not of you, Lord, may it just uh, pass through and not be heard by anyone. Uh, we humble ourselves before you tonight, pray in Jesus' name, amen. How's everyone going? Good, great. That's good, nice to know, all caught up now. Um, have you ever been uh, awaiting the arrival of something before in your life? You know, like something, you know, you're just really keen for it to come, like waiting, just longing for it to come. Maybe some of you guys are eBay junkies and you buy stuff off eBay and you're waiting to see if it's any good, the thing you just spent 200 bucks on. Well, I was in, uh, when I was in Papua New Guinea um, over there for about 18 months, I remember awaiting the arrival of brown rice. Um, weird, yeah? Um, I used to teach at a high school over there, and uh, it was a boarding school as well. So people, students would come from all over the place. They would well, walk for a couple of days. Some of them some of them would get on a boat for, you know, a 12-hour trip. Um, you know, some would fly in. Um, they'd basically come from all over the place and stay at the Holy Name School. And uh, brown rice was a staple diet. It was what they used to wake up and have for breakfast. And then after school, they'd uh, come and have lunch with brown rice. And then at dinner time, well, why not have some more brown rice? But then sometimes this brown rice would run out. And it used to run out uh, because the school was kind of operating on a credit system over in the town, about an eight-hour boat trip around the coast. And they would uh, get brown rice from there, but they'd keep booking it up on credit. But then because the school didn't have much money, they couldn't pay off the credit. So the, basically the, the supermarket would say, well, we're not going to sell you any more brown rice. And that meant that basically the students had nothing to eat. Um, well, they'd somehow wheel a deal, the school, the, the headmaster, who was a pretty scary kind of bloke, he'd go in there and persuade them of the benefit of giving them some food to eat. And I can remember when we knew it was coming... We'd all be awaiting the arrival of the boat, you know, that would kind of like you'd see around this massive point and it would take about two hours to get to the little wharf at the bottom of where the school was and it'd kind of chug along and everyone was just going, man, I hope this is the boat with the rice on it. And uh, when it finally arrived and it was the brown rice, it was like everyone's going, yeah, I'm pretty hungry, this is a good thing, you know. They've been living on just vegetables and that kind of stuff. Um, no one else is living on vegetables, so they were pretty keen to get rice. Um, and when the rice finally came, it'd just be, it'd be fantastic. It'd be ecstatic. And they'd go up there and they'd put, stoke the fire up and they'd cook these massive kind of coppers, copra, or I don't know what it's called, but it's a massive container, fire underneath, and they'd cook the rice up. Have you ever awaited the arrival of something? Well, in tonight's passage um, from the book of Acts, we witness the arrival of something amazing, something 
more tastier even, would you believe, than brown rice and far better for you even, would you believe. The arrival is something amazing. So we've been looking at Acts. Um, I've got a series, an eight-week series on the book. And last week, um, John and I looked at the uh, account of Pentecost when God's Spirit was poured out on the, the first followers of Jesus. And, uh, and at the time it happened, if you remember from last week, there was a lot going on and it encouraged the, the kind of the, everyone kind of checking out what was happening because the Holy Spirit came and there was a violent wind, it said. You know? And it also says that there was like tongues of fire coming down on each of the believers in Jesus. And then we also hear that these people who have just uh, had the Holy Spirit come upon them are now speaking in languages that they don't even normally know how to speak. Um, so the crowd is, uh, there's, a great, there's great bewilderment um, of the crowd. I don't know what bewilderment means. No, I do. I think it's something like, what the? They were thinking, they were going like, what is going on in this place? They were bewildered. And it's in the, this context that Peter stands up and he says, this is what has just happened. So our passage is uh, Acts 2 um, from verses 14 to 41. So if you've got your Bibles, just turn to that. Um, it's pretty long. So we're going to like take off little chunks as we go through. So the first little bit. So the people are going, what on earth is just happening? And just the verse before, they think uh, they could be drunk. And uh, that's, uh, they could be drunk. But P- Peter begins his message um, from verses 14 to 21. I'll read now. It's, he says to them, Pentecost has just happened. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Sorry, your young men, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the great arrival of something very, very amazing. What's just happened? Well, it's not being drunk that's happened here, but we hear Joel speaking about uh, what the people of Israel, God's chosen people, have been awaiting for a very, very long time. This prophecy, uh, Joel talking about what was going to happen sometime in the future, is about 500 years old. And he's telling people there's going to come a day when salvation will be made available to all people. Salvation available to all people. And in verse 17, we call it the last days. The last days, a day marked by the pouring out of God's Spirit on all those people who have been saved and are in right relationship with God. So up until this moment in history, up until this moment, 
There's been, uh, God has like chosen Israel to be his special nation, if you like. The rest of the people outside of Israel haven't experienced this close relationship. Now, God no doubt loves, you know, all people. He created every person to be in relationship. But up until this time, he's chosen Israel. He chose Israel. He wanted to create a nation. And he actually promised that he would choose a nation and he would relate to this this people and say, this is how I want to relate with you. He would show them the way of of finding forgiveness of their sins so that they could relate to a holy God. But the plan from the outset has been that God would choose Israel. He would say, this is how you're supposed to live. And then eventually the blessing of this relationship was going to be expanded to all people across the whole of the world. So when he was choosing Israel way back, he was choosing them with the notion of bringing salvation to all people. And this is the moment in history that salvation is made available to all people. Now, this is profound information. Now, let me read back the beginning of this very process so that I can kind of back up what I'm saying. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it's the call of Abram. This is uh, just come after, you know, like if, if you've got any uh, kind of understanding of the, the beginnings of the, of the Bible, we know that God created the world and he created people to live in relationship. But then over time, people... Uh, people decided to reject that God, reject the relationship. And then we see that in the beginning around in Genesis that it's like sin gets bigger and bigger and bigger and like crescendos with what we call the Tower of Babel where humanity combines to build this massive tower in like opposition to God. And it's like it's the total destruction of the world, if you like. And in the midst of this, God says, well, I'm going to, create a plan of salvation. I'm going to call Abram. And this is the call in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. He says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the promise of God to Abram at a time of total depravity of humanity and he chooses to make a nation so he can bring salvation to the rest of the earth. So the key is the end of verse 3 where it says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's looking forward. He's looking forward like thousands of years couple of thousand or something, to the moment when salvation would be not just for Israel, but it would be made open to all people. And here we have it right now happening at Pentecost. You know, he's been sustaining the world. He's been sustaining the whole world by his power. But it's almost like the people outside of Israel are like limping really, really badly. And they're waiting for the time that the doctor can come and address the wound to fix the injury. And now it's finally arrived. This moment, salvation is here. It's available to all. So Pentecost marks it. It marks that salvation is available. 
available to all people. Now, when I was growing up in the small town of Alexandra, a couple of hours south of here, I thought it, we had it good when it came to television viewing. Um, we used to have a, a TV. It was coloured and everything. Some of you may remember there used to be black and white TVs. And we used to have two TV stations. How's that? Thought I was pretty uh, happy with that. I was pretty, it was pretty cool to have these two stations. We had ABC and Channel 9. And I used to be very happy with these two stations until I found out that other people had more. I felt a bit robbed at that point. Did Aubrey Wodonga ever have a couple, just a couple of radio stations, uh, TV stations? Hands, no, can't remember. Always had more than two. It mustn't have just me and Alexandra. <laughs> My take was, I went to, so we had some friends and family in Melbourne and they had like five. They had five TV stations. We had two. I'm going, what's all that about? Turns out that if you live in the country and if you live in Alexandria and probably down in the little hollow where we lived, certain stations weren't available to us. It was like the people living in Melbourne, and it sounds like Aubrey Wodonga as well, they were the Israelites. You know, God's chosen people. They got to enjoy the special privileges of being in relationship with him. You know, having five stations instead of two. But then a few years later, a few years later, salvation finally came. Don't, this is a, it was a sweet, sweet taste. The UHF aerial on the roof brought not only ABC and Channel 9, but Channel 7 and Channel 10 and SBS. <laughs> I was happy at the time, watched a lot of TV. Pentecost, Pentecost marks the arrival, the availability of salvation to all people. Let me ask you the question. Have you received salvation? Have you received forgiveness for your rejection of God? Now, all, all those things you do that demonstrate that you are the king of your life and you relegate God to some other place. Has God forgiven you for that? Peter says, salvation is here. Well, he goes on in his message and he answers the question, how is salvation here now? How is it made available to all people? And the answer is that it's because of Jesus. It's because he is both Lord and Christ. He is Lord in Christ. And there are three key aspects in the passage that demonstrate this fact. The fact that Jesus is Lord in Christ and because he is that, salvation can be made available to all people and God's Spirit can be poured out to those people who are saved. Firstly, the first key aspect that points to this fact. Jesus is God's man put to death. So if you look back at the uh, passage from verses 22 to 23, it says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, 
As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God had demonstrated that Jesus was his man for the job. He was God's anointed one. And it's kind of like the passage is saying, God has written countless references to state that this is the case. He's shown in a myriad of ways that Jesus is God's man for the job. Jesus' accreditation by God, it comes, you can see it in the forms of miracles and wonders and signs that he does. I mean, it makes perfect sense, really, doesn't it, if you think about it, that God endorses Jesus. I mean, how else can he raise someone to life? How else can Jesus, you know, calm a raging storm or feed 5,000 people with a few fish and a couple of loaves of bread? It was clear that God had endorsed Jesus as his man for the job. But they didn't understand because in verse 23, we read they murdered him. They murdered God's anointed one by nailing him to the cross. What's even more interesting is that this was God's will. It was God's plan for Christ that he would die on the cross, that the anointed one would die. And the reason he was put to death was to take on the punishment of all people who themselves deserve to die because of their rejection of God. And let me just say it again, because it's pretty, I think we find that uncomfortable, that Jesus was put to death, God's choice, put to death to take on the punishment of all of us here and all the people outside of these four walls because of our rejection of him, God's plan for Jesus to die. Does it make sense to you? You know, I think maybe it does for lots of us, but there might be some of us who don't, who it doesn't make sense. I think there are people who wonder, you know, if God's so loving, you know, if God's so loving, why doesn't he just kind of forgive us? You know what I mean? Like without someone having to die on the cross, you know. I mean, why does someone have to die? Can't he just, I mean, he's God. He can kind of just kind of ignore it, can't he? And I think the answer is no, he can't because his justice must prevail. And I don't think this notion of, of justice is like, like only understandable by Christians, if you like. I think that justice is a value that God has instilled in every person. or in, It's, it's kind of like, you know, like most people understand, oh, God's a God of love. And no, people know that. Well, God's a God of justice. And I think that same, in the same way, that permeates people. People understand justice. I mean, even if you don't know the Bible, you understand justice. So if you're in, in an Aboriginal community, if you're an Aboriginal person, you understand that justice must prevail. You know, if you're uh, on, in Papua New Guinea in, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, on the side of the Pacific Ocean, people understand that justice must prevail. Like when a wrong is done, that they have to be held to account. You have to punish a wrong. It's a universal kind of understanding. So my point is when we do wrong, when people wrong God, when people ignore God and reject God, there has to be justice. There has to be punishment. If you ignore your father, an earthly father, you reject what they say, you'll be punished. Imagine doing that to the creator of the heavens and the earth. 
And the justice is that people must be put to death. That's the punishment. And here we have Jesus dying on the cross. And it's our punishment. We don't have to die if only we would accept that it's true. And the story goes on. He died, but there's more. Please look with me from verse 24. I'll read to 32. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And then Peter, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus because he is no mere human. So we see God's man, the Christ, Christ being anointed one, is resurrected. And Peter now turns to the words of David, who spoke long ago this, about this very moment, the moment when God would raise to life the one who he had anointed to bring about salvation to all people and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So David, a, a, a previous king of Israel, highly respected individual, he says, and it's like Jesus is saying these words, Jesus is saying this, he's saying, you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So Jesus was not abandoned to the grave. He fits the bill he, and his body did not rot. Now, every person in history, this has happened to them. They've died, they've been buried and their bodies rot. It's kind of the way things go. And not only did the highly respected king speak about this future event of the raising to life of Jesus, the anointed one, he says... I spoke to him after he was risen from the dead. And there's all these other people who saw him and spoke to Jesus after he had risen from the dead. God has risen Jesus, resurrected Jesus back to life. He didn't stay dead as some of us or some people are inclined to think. No, he rose to life again. Well, the third thing, Peter continues because the story's not over, there's one more critical piece of information for us to prove that Jesus is Lord and Christ and the one who is able to pour out the Spirit and offer salvation to all people. From verse 32, let's read. It says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Exaltation to the right hand of God. He's not only, he's not only just not dead, he's resurrected. He's also now been exalted, ascended to heaven. And he sits enthroned at the right hand of God. Even as, we, even as I speak now and you sit here, Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God. This is a pretty good kind of CV, I would say. If you were right, uh, exalted to the right hand of Bill Gates, that will put you in a very influential position. At the right hand of Bill Gates, you will be given great power and authority to exercise over the empire of Microsoft, that computer empire. That would be, you know, you'd have that kind of power and authority at the right hand of Bill Gates. Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. This means he exercises the very power of God. He's no mere human, he's God as well. And this clarifies who Jesus is. He is Lord. So when you read in the Old Testament, when you hear about Lord, Lord's, it's pretty much an equivalent for God. Jesus is Lord in Christ. And as the Son of God, he reigns at the right hand of God. Would you say that that gives Jesus the power and authority? You know, he's died for your sins. He's risen to life. He's now exalted at the right hand of God where he kind of reigns. Would you say that he can offer you forgiveness for the wrongs you've committed against him? The answer is yes. And it's only Jesus who can offer you salvation. It's only Jesus who can pour out God's spirit to those who are saved. Salvation is here and available to all because Jesus is both Lord and Christ. I wonder what you think of that. You know, again, are you far from God? Have you received this salvation? Are you living for yourself or are you living for God? Because Jesus can save you. Jesus wants to save you for all eternity by what he has done on the cross and his rising to life and his exaltation. Salvation is here. Does anyone uh, here enjoy mathematics? Yeah, that's one couple of weird people around the place. No, not at all. Solving quadratic equations. Anyone out there love it? No, yeah, maybe. And all that kind of thing. My brother Simon, he was a genius at maths. He had this genius big fat brain for maths. And he could use uh, maths like a language. He could actually, you know, so he could kind of describe with like an equation, you drop one, like a, a drop of water falls down onto a still kind of pond of water and it creates ripples. And Simon would probably go, I don't know, you know, kind of just like write an equation, write a mathematic equation to describe it. I don't get it. He's very smart. I don't mind though a bit of maths myself, but nowhere near Brother Simon. 
And I can remember doing maths in year 12, math methods, and some of these problems I used to try and work out. Um, they were pretty much impossible for my small brain. But I would sit there in class and I would try with every ounce of my brain to work it out. Just sit there going, I'm going to work you out, math little equation or whatever it was. And then sometimes I'd kind of drift off in a daydream and I'd find myself walking in a rainforest in far north Queensland. And then I'd come back again to the problem before me of this mass equation. Do you know that teachers, they're available for assistance? <laughs> Do you know that you can actually, you're actually allowed to ask help from a teacher? Oh, that's their job, apparently. That's their job. When I look back at Year 12 maths for me, when I look back at it, I did not ask for help as much as I should have. And I think my results testify to this truth. Those people who sought help even had the audacity and the courage or the nerdum. <laughs> they would sometimes stay behind and they would ask for help. They'd ask for help. Can you help me out with this? Can you help me with this, with this mass problem that's kind of doing the head in? And they had marks to testify to the help they received. People, we need help in dealing with sin. There is no doubt about that. And Peter says, salvation is here. Help is here through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you haven't said yes to Jesus' help, you will not pass. You will not pass into eternal life with God in heaven. Are you humble enough? Are you humble enough to ask for help from God? Well, the account goes on and we see what happens when people are convicted by the truth and make the right response. Please look with me at the last few verses. From verse 37, it says, uh, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of, Lord, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The right response, they were convicted. They were convicted of the truth. Notice that they're cut to the heart. They're kind of laid bare. They've got nothing else. They know this is the truth. And they make the right response. 3,000 people are added to their number that day. And doesn't this testify to the fact that salvation is available for, to all now? And if all these different people from all different tongues from around the country hearing about salvation, come into faith. This is a great day. Now, if you're here tonight and you're checking out the claims of Jesus and you're feeling convicted of the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ and you understand the need to accept his offer of forgiveness tonight, the offer of salvation, God is speaking to you in verse 38. Verse 38 says, if you want salvation, if you want to have forgiveness from your sins, if you want to have an eternity 
with a loving God of the universe, this is what you have to do. This is it. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge. Acknowledge that you have lived for yourself a way that's wrong, a way that has been rejecting God and turn, instead of living for yourself, turn and just desire to live for God. Make him Lord of your life. Ask God to forgive you. Ask it, plead it, desire it, long for it. And trust that Jesus, when he died on the cross, was dying your punishment. He suffered uh, the punishment you deserve, that I deserve. And then be baptised to show this reality of what's happened in your heart. You know, if you do this, it's amazing. It is so amazing. I cannot urge you enough if you have not made this choice. If you do this, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. Passage says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far that God removes our sin from us. When we are saved, we are forgiven. We are called children of God. Anyone want to be a child of God? Anyone want to know God's favour in your life? You do this, you begin a relationship. I wonder where you are with that. Now, for those of us who have given our life to Jesus, um, that have received salvation, there are a couple of things I want to encourage us with. And the first is continue to submit your life to Jesus as Lord and Christ. You know, his, Jesus is the place we find restoration, forgiveness, and the hope of eternal life. We as Christians should never grow tired or weary of thinking about what Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection and exaltation. Now, even over the last couple of weeks, you know, I've been uh, challenged by quite a few things. Sometimes I, I suffer from like this anxiety, you know, like a kind of uh, chesty kind of pain, if you like, because I'm just so worried about the stuff I have to do in my life. And just over the last couple of weeks, I've been reflecting on God's character. I've been thinking about his perfection. I've been thinking about his holiness, you know, that he's so set apart from us. I've been thinking about his amazing love for us, uh, even though we, we do wrong. I've been thinking about his power and his justice. And it's like the closer I move to God, the more I see my imperfection. The more I see my imperfection. I liken it to uh, when you look in the mirror at yourself under good light or poor light. And uh, I'm not that vain, but this is how it goes. In the poor light, I look in the mirror and go, I don't think my skin complexion is that bad. You know, actually, I think my skin complexion's not bad at all. And I go, you know, I haven't got many kind of whatever, whatever, you know, marks and stuff. And then I go to another person's house and they've got like a fluorescent tube or the sun's coming in or something. And I look in the mirror and I go, oh my goodness me, look at those imperfections on my face. It's like the closer we draw to God, the more we're in his light, the more we're kind of seeing God for who he, who he is, 
the more we realise that we are so in need of forgiveness. And I find myself at this place, this place where God is so set apart, he's so perfect and, and uh, all loving and all powerful and sovereign over the universe. And he's filled this person who's not totally bad, but he's just got a lot of dirt on him and a lot of sin and still hasn't dealt with a lot of stuff and will be forever dealing with it. So I find holiness and sinfulness and I go, I want to keep coming to you, God. And then I find the place of the cross. And then I find complete forgiveness. I find that me as a sinner can have relationship with a holy God. Now, that is grace. That is grace. There is nothing we can do more. We cannot earn it. You cannot work your way in like trying to solve a math equation to deal with your sin. The only way, the closer you get to God, is to take on Christ's punishment for your sin. And it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. And like... I've never known a time in my life where I haven't known God, but just in the last couple of weeks, I'm just going, i just got to be here. I've got to be at the cross. I've got to be seeking your grace. doesn't matter if you're just starting out or if you've been a Christian for 70 years, that cross is so central. So stay there, guys. Stay at that cross. Seek it out if you're, if you're straying from that place of grace. And then secondly, for us as Christians, from this place of grace, we want to proclaim. We want to proclaim the gospel. How can I, if I'm on, I'm on the foot of Jesus saying, like, you, you are amazing. You make me holy. You make me right. How can I not want to just share to other people that you can find forgiveness, that you can find restoration, that you, if your life is falling apart and everything is going wrong, you can... Find this place with God. Travel with the grace. But use that to, you know, from that place, proclaim the gospel. So it's, it's interesting because at the beginning of Acts, in verse 8, Jesus says, this is the words of Jesus. It's kind of like saying, stay in Jerusalem until, uh, because it's here, verse 8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When we become believers, the promise is that we'll be given God's Spirit. And Jesus says that a central role of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to witness, to empower us to speak about the fact that salvation is here. So as believers, we need to ask God through His Spirit to help us, to give us power to witness to the fact that salvation's here. To live and speak, to live and speak. Not just speak, not just live, to live and speak the good news. It's available to everyone. Salvation is here. It's interesting to just note too the effects of a person empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you don't remember, Peter is previously, before, uh, when Jesus was around, he denied him. He denied Christ. Here's a guy who said, I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever. And then he denies him. And here, empowered by the Spirit, what does he do? Is this a guy who is denying Christ? Here is a man empowered by the Spirit to proclaim, uh, to witness to the fact that salvation is here. It's available to all. We too can be empowered. 
We just need to ask for help. Well, salvation is here. And the Spirit of God is given to us, to those who are saved, to witness to this truth. I don't know where you stand with God at the moment, but I hope that this is an encouragement for you to either enter into this salvation tonight or very soon, or it's an opportunity to realise that your life needs to be founded on the cross again. And it's a time where you might ask for God's Spirit to empower you so that this week, you know, when you go out and we all go to our own kind of different walks of life, you go to your school, you go to holidays or work or wherever you are in your family, that you can just declare the praises of God, declare that salvation is here. I hope that is your prayer. It's certainly mine. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you and we know that you are an amazing God, that you are holy and sovereign and all-powerful, but God, that at the cross where Jesus, both Lord and Christ, offers us complete forgiveness and restoration, that you offer us salvation from a life lived rejecting and ignoring you and not living your way. Father God, I just pray that... um, For those of us here tonight, for those of you out there tonight, Lord, that if we have not given our lives to you, if we have not received salvation, that we would do it very soon. And Lord, I pray that uh, as each Christian, uh, for each Christian in this room, Lord, tonight, Lord, people who call you Lord and Saviour, Lord in Christ, that uh, you would help us live for you. Fill us by your Spirit, we pray. Fill us by your Spirit, we pray that we might know your grace and we might declare and witness to the fact that salvation is here. This is our urge, our, our cry, our passion. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.